Industry Pods and Evergreen Podcast Network are pleased to present the following podcast. Well, we'll have to keep a close eye on those predictions. Here now to take us through a brief history of decentralization. Mistakes in the past is Rivet's Austin Roberts. Good morning. My name is Austin Roberts. I am the CEO of Rivet.cloud, and we are an open source blockchain infrastructure provider. And I am here to talk about a history of decentralization and the mistakes of the past. So first, we've got to talk about the spectrum of decentralization, because decentralization is not a binary, yes, you're decentralized or no, you're not. Uh, at one end of the spectrum, we have totally centralized systems where all users are connecting to one service provider. Um, that one service provider has the opportunity to censor content, potentially alter content submitted by the users, and the users have no way to know that their content is being censored or altered. Uh, so obviously putting th that much power into th the hands of a few individuals uh, is, is undesirable, and you know, we, we'd like to do better than that. On the far end of the spectrum are peer-to-peer -peer systems, and they have no trusted authorities. Everybody is an equal peer on the system, which is awesome, except that these are really difficult to implement. Uh, there's technical challenges around how do you know um, th that uh, th the information you're getting from a peer is accurate. Uh, and then there's other challenges around how do you make sure that information doesn't dis disappear just because a peer has dropped off the network. Um, Kind of in the middle, we have open protocols where uh, users have to trust a service provider, but because the service providers are providing a standard set of information, um, the, the users can easily switch between service providers or even use multiple service providers at the same time. Um, this means that service providers have to compete for their, their users' trust, uh, and, and that tends to keep the, the service providers more honest. So this is this is not as good as a totally peer-to-peer -to -peer system, but it's better than a totally centralized one. And kind of as an extension of open protocols, we have federated systems where the, these tend to be a little bit easier for the users because the users just connect to one service provider that they've looked at and that they've decided that they trust. And then that service provider talks to the other service providers on their behalf. So the users can still connect to other users throughout the network, but they, you know, indirectly through the service providers, but they only have to worry about establishing a connection with this one service provider. And they only have to worry about vetting that they trust this one service provider. So again, this is uh, quite a bit better than having a totally centralized service, uh, but not quite as nice as going to the, the fully decentralized peer-to-peer uh, -peer end of the spectrum. Um, Next, we need to talk briefly about network effects to understand some of the history of, of, uh, of networks. Uh, users tend to be happiest when they're on a network that has a lot of other peers. Whether you're talking about a, a centralized service or a peer-to-peer -peer system, if you are the only one on your network, it is not a very useful network because you, you don't have other people to talk to. If there's lots of other users on the network that you're on, uh, it, it's a useful network and, and one that you can get a lot of advantage from. There are also some risks to federated networks that I want to talk about. So in, in this example, you can see uh, several uh, service providers, some of which have several users 
and a few of which only have one or a small number of users. And in these situations, if every service provider is playing by the rules, things should work just fine. Um, the, 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 even the people who have decided to run their own nodes can connect to the service and get all of the information that they need and participate in the network just like anybody else. But because there are some nodes that don't have very much connectivity to them, the larger nodes could, if, if they were acting solely in their own interests, disconnect the users on the smaller, or disconnect from the, the smaller nodes, and then those users are likely to migrate to the bigger nodes and contribute to more centralization of the federated network. So now we're going to start getting into the history of networks. And, and the early networks, uh, you know, 70s and 80s, uh, we had ARPANET, uh, America Online, CompuServe, Prodigy. Now, th these all served vaguely different purposes, and they had different audiences. But they were essentially their own networks uh, in the early days that had their own walled garden set of services. Um, and then at the opposite end of the, the centralization spectrum, uh, you had Usenets, and Usenets were a, a standard protocol where my computer could literally call your com computer on the telephone and exchange information. Uh, and and these this was a nice decentralized protocol, open protocol that uh, anybody could implement, and it was very easy to exchange information with anybody this way. Um, but in the late 80s and early 90s, things kind of shifted from this uh model of a, a few some fairly centralized networks to what we now know as the internet so arpanet kind of shut down and opened up the protocols that uh, arpanet had been implemented with for anybody to participate on the internet uh so then we ended up with america online compuserve Pro and prodigy as internet service providers with a long list of other internet service providers and what used to be the walled garden services that they offered often became websites that anybody could uh uh contribute to or could could visit and uh contribute to uh and then of course we ended up with usenet gateways so that that you didn't have to dial somebody's computer directly with your phone, you could connect to the internet and get that information that way. Uh, this is still more or less the model of the internet today. Of course, the internet service providers have, have changed, but uh, it is still a very decentralized system with no singular company in charge. Next, we're going to talk about the history of email. So in the very early days of email, it basically consisted of some protocols. You had SMTP for, for sending email and POP3 for downloading it from your, your mail server. And you know, generally the way it worked was a, a user had a mail client and they used that mail client to connect to their mail server and they would send an email and their mail server would send it to somebody else's mail server and everything got where it needed to go. It was fairly tedious to run your own mail server. It, it tended to be larger organizations like universities that had them. Um, but it was a, a totally federated protocol, very decentralized, uh, no mail servers really had any more weight than any others. But flash forward to the early 2000s, and most people have switched to webmail service providers like Hotmail and Gmail and Yahoo Mail. Of course, you could still run your, uh, your own server at this time, but the, the, the attractive thing about the webmail providers was that they were easy. They were you know, somebody who knew what they were doing was running them for you and they were free, which of course 
those of you here at this conference know that if a, a product is free, you're not the customer, you're the product. Um, and, and so moving forward to today, Hotmail has kind of evolved to become a part of Office 365, and Gmail has kind of evolved into G Suite, and Yahoo has largely fallen into obscurity, and running your own mail server is now called Have You Checked Your Spam Folder? So then let's look at the history of messaging and chat. Uh, in the early days of chat, we had this protocol called IRC. It was a nice protocol. You had your IRC client. You could connect to several different IRC servers and chat with the people who were on those servers. Um, and because it was an open protocol, it was very easy. You know, If one IRC server started doing something you didn't like, it was very easy to move to a different one or even run your own. On the other end of the spectrum, we had uh, instant messaging clients like Yahoo and AIM and ICQ. And with these networks, if you wanted to talk to somebody who was on that network, you had to use be on that network with that network service provider using their protocol. It was not, th th there was no choice. If you wanted to talk to a person who was on this instant messaging platform, you had to be on that instant messaging platform. But in the late 2000s, this changed with the advent of a protocol called XMPP. Uh, and a number of instant messaging services providers implemented the XMP proto XMPP protocol, which allowed their users to talk to other XMPP services. Uh, and those that didn't often had XMPP gateways run by third parties that would allow, say, somebody on AOL Instant Messenger to message somebody on MSN Messenger uh, from the, the comfort of the protocol that they wanted to be on. So people could choose their own service provider and it was a very nice system. But today, 10 years later, we've done a 180 degree turn uh, and we are back to centralized service providers. So even when you get to a good spot, you can still go backwards. You know, now it's join my discord server or find me on telegram. And we're back to giving our data to these centralized service providers uh, that, that we now have to trust to, to handle our communications. So next, I want to talk about the history of login and identity management. In the early days, you had uh, several networks of sites, things like MSN and Yahoo and AOL. Uh, and on these networks of sites, you would log in and you would have your news feed that you could configure and you'd have your email and you'd have your chat. And, and your identity was based around these networks. And you might have accounts on more than one of these networks, but uh, in general, you know, it was, you, you, you had a few IDs, um, on, on the service provider that you were using. It was not great because these were big conglomerates, but it was fairly easy to manage. By the mid 2000s, though, there were websites springing up all over the place and every single one of them had one of these. Uh, you now had to come up with a login for every single website that you visited and that was very decentralized, but it was not very convenient. Uh, keeping track of all of these different identities uh, was a lot of effort. You had to worry about a lot of passwords, a lot of usernames, and, and that sort of thing. So in the late 2000s, we had the promise of OpenID. And OpenID was this amazing protocol that promised that you were going to be able to pick your identity provider. And if you didn't like any of the identity providers that were out there, you could just run your own. And with this identity provider, you were going to be able to log into any site on the internet, and it was going to be awesome. But the reality of OpenID ended up looking like this, where you have sign into Google, continue with Facebook, sign into Twitter. 
and, and just in general, uh, you know, this is the worst of both worlds because not only uh, do you have this gate gatekeeper who gets to see all of your data and see, uh, you know, potentially keep you from logging into a site if they want to. Uh, you don't even get to pick that service provider because there, there's only a handful that anybody wants to let you use. Um, but now we're in the blockchain era, right? And and we've got decentralization and things are going to be awesome. Um, and, and of course, there are different blockchains with varying degrees of decentralization. But uh, how do we fix the mistakes of the past? And this isn't just a question of how do we make sure that uh, blockchains don't follow the same path of decentralization, but how can we go back and fix those other protocols that ended up extra centralized? Well, we need to build decentralized protocols and these need to have open specifications that anybody can implement and they need to have open source implementations uh, that, that serve as a baseline. These protocols need to have permissionless access where there's nobody who can decide whether or not you get to participate in this protocol. And these protocols need to have strong privacy protection uh, so that selling your users data is not the way that you make money with this. Uh, and then finally, these protocols need to have financial incentives to protect those principles. That's one of the amazing things that blockchain has brought to the table is the ability to build financial incentives into protocols to incentivize the people who are developing and promoting the protocol and incentivize the people who are providing the services. Um, how do we go about repeating the mistakes of the past? Well, if we're too worried about the short term and worried about faster transactions and cleaner UIs and choose centralized solutions in order to get those things, we're going to end up with centralized systems again. We need to think about monetization. If we're not monetizing the protocols, but instead of selling user data and selling user attention, we're going to end up back at centralized systems. And finally, we need to be cautious of entrenched interests and ideas. If we're relying on centralized tech companies for our decentralized services, we're just going to end up right back at centralized systems again. If we're relying on centralized financial companies uh, to, to build these things, we're going to end up right back at centralized systems again. And regulators, we, we have to vote for politicians that are going to impose regulations uh, that support decentralization and not regulations that uh, reinforce the entrenched interests and ideas of the past. Blockchain is a great chance to get this right. But we haven't done it yet. Thank you.